I want to say what's up to the four special ladies here in the back row on this side. Ladies, where are you at? And these are some really good friends from the church where Scott and I worked a long time ago. There's the fourth one. Say what up, Dara. Um, uh, They worked in Iowa City where Scott and I met uh, starting in 1999. Um, And these guys were in college. And they, um, so this was whatever, you know, 16 years ago or so. And so if you, if you want to, <laughs> if you, uh, if you want some crazy stories about Scott, there's nothing on me, as you can imagine, there's nothing on me. But if you want anything about Scott, you can talk to them after the service. Um, but we want to, want you guys to feel welcome and thank you guys for being here. Um, from, yeah, it's kind of like, you know how you see somebody and you haven't seen them in a long time and it's like, wow, I'm really old. You know, because last time I saw them, I was like 26, and I'm not 26 anymore. So anyway, it's all good. It's all good. So today uh, at the Vine, we are going to be kind of landing the plane in the book of Genesis. And so it's been almost 16 months in Genesis. And so this, this Sunday uh, is our last time looking at the book of Genesis. And I feel like it's been a great journey. I don't know about you guys, but it's been a huge blessing to me personally as I've got to prepare and the other guys on the teaching team gotten to prepare. And I feel like I've been marked and moved by all these massive themes because Genesis really is the foundation for what follows. It really is. It's, it's aptly named the beginning, Genesis. And so the whole kind of structure on which the Christian worldview sits is on Genesis. It's all founded in Genesis. And so today we're just going to kind of wrap up with a high-level overview of the book of Genesis and some of the things that we've learned and promises that we can cherish. And here's the big point that I want us to see today. I want you to see Jesus in the big promises of the book of Genesis. I want you to see Jesus in the big promises of the book of of Genesis, all right? That's where we're headed. So in business, there's a, there's a phrase that I've learned um, as I've grown up um, into the, in my adult life, and I've observed different businessmen, and I've been participated in retail a little bit, and, and the, the catchphrase is this, you want to under-promise and over-deliver. You want to under-promise and over-deliver. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, um, I, I, when we first moved here, a lot of you know this, a lot of you don't. Um, I worked for, for about 20 months at the Apple Store, and they do a great job at under-promising and over-delivering. So, for example, this is just a strategy. Um, you bring your computer in to get serviced, and the, the person that you turn it into will say, okay, we'll have it back to you in two or three days, three days at the latest. And then oftentimes they'll call them three or four hours later and say it's done. Um, and they know that most likely it will be done, but they give themselves that buffer because we don't want to o- overpromise and underdeliver. We want to underpromise and overdeliver. And so that makes happy customers. You can see how, I mean, this happened to me where it's like, turn my computer in, we'll have it back to you in three days. Oh, three days without my computer. And then, uh, you know, four or five hours later, I'm showing up and it's like, wow, that was really, really helpful. I'm really, really thankful that you guys were so speedy. You, you over ex- uh, exceeded my expectations. And, and so why is um, under-promise, over-deliver a key phrase in business relationships? Uh, because most business people know that managing people's expectations is one of the keys to making people happy. You can see that in this example. And if you're happy, 
you're going to recommend who's servicing you. And you're going you're gonna to talk about that. And you're going to pay those people gladly. And, and you'll probably call them back. Right? It's not a hard concept. But you can, you can see how the opposite would be equally powerful in the opposite direction. Right? Like what's, so, what's more frustrating than, than say one thing, do another? So this was a, a massive example in my life. Uh, when we were leaving Iowa City and moving to, to Nashville, we had gone down to Nashville and we were going to buy a house. And uh, we, we, we connected with a, a mortgage uh, lender and lots of conversations with the mortgage lender. And the mortgage lender's, ironically, his name was Jesus, Jesus. So he, Jesus was our mortgage lender. So I was talking to Jesus quite a bit on the phone. Hey, Jesus, are we good on the loan? Yeah, we're good on the loan. Two weeks later, hey, how are things coming? We got all the paperwork squared away. Yep, we're good on the loan. And, you know, couple more weeks later, Jesus, we good on the loan. We're good on the loan. So two weeks before we're about to leave and be homeless, and we want to buy this house in Nashville, and we got people moving into our house in Iowa City. Uh, Jesus, how are we doing on the loan? Oh, I forgot. There's one big thing that we don't have dealt with here, and it's going to create this massive inconvenience for you. And it was this huge example of overpromising under delivering, and you know you're never in a good situation when you're on the phone yelling at Jesus. You know what I mean? Like that's not a good scenario. And so, so it was, it was, it was, it was that's burned into my brain, you know. And so, honestly, you know, you can think about how this works. You know how this would work in marriage. If you're constantly saying one thing and doing another, that's going to put strain on your marriage. But strain on your parents. You sow deep seeds of resentment and bitterness in your kids if you're constantly telling them one thing and doing another. It erodes trust in business relationships, like we've talked about. It erodes trust in, in roommate relationships. It, it, it harms relationships in the neighborhood, those that you live next door to. Um, all this boils down to keeping your word, keeping your promises. And honestly, as Christians, we should be first in line to know that we don't live up to this as we should. None of us perfectly promise and deliver. And that's why we're Christians, because there's only been one, and his name is Jesus. He's the ultimate promise keeper. And because we're not, that's why we need him. And that's why we don't have to hide the fact that we've messed up, because our trust is in the one who hasn't. And his perfection is credited to us as a gift by faith. I mean, that's, that's Christianity at its core. But the point here is God is the ultimate promise keeper, and he always keeps his promise. He always delivers on what he says he's going to do. Now, it may not be in the timing that we prefer, but that's been one of the massive themes in the book of Genesis is that God always keeps his word. God always keeps his promises. And so I want us to see that this morning in three profound ways from the book of Genesis. And I'm just praying that that would just instill in us um, uh, just like an IV of encouragement, um, of love and trust and treasuring of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So I want us to see this morning that all of the big promises of Genesis are summed up in Jesus. And this is just something that that Paul has said in the second letter to the Corinthians. Check this out. So I'm not making this up. Uh, For all the promises of God, especially in the book of Genesis, you you could fill that in, all the promises of God find their yes 
in him. And the him here is Jesus. Find their amen, find their assurance, find their rock solid foundation. That's what he's meaning here by the word yes. All the promises of God find their yes, it's true. God is true to his word in him, in Jesus. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So we see this and we respond with an amen. God, thank you, gratitude, love, a response uh, for his glory, for God's glory. It is God who establishes you, uh, us. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. So it's all centered in Christ. It's all centered on Jesus and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So we have the subjective experience of the Holy Spirit in our lives, changing our desires, changing our wants, aligning God's will to our will, not our will, but your will be done. That's all evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life as you put your trust and treasure in Jesus, that all these promises are yes, and it's all about Jesus. It's all summed up in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, okay? So that's, that's kind of the 30,000-foot view of where we're going as we remind ourselves of what, what are these promises that are fulfilled in Jesus this morning in the book of Genesis. All right, so three things, three promises from the book of Genesis that we're going to unpack today. Number one, the promise to crush the serpent. The promise to crush the serpent fulfilled in Jesus. Number two, the promise to create a people. The promise to create a people fulfilled in Jesus. And number three, the promise of his presence, the promise of his presence fulfilled in Jesus, okay? So number one, the promise to crush the serpent. This is Genesis 3.15. So if you can think back probably 14 months ago, we unpacked this text, and I'm going to do it real quickly this morning, but here's what it says. This is after Adam and Eve had said, forget you, God, we're going to do our own thing. We're not going to trust your word. We're going to trust our own word. And God, as a just judge, he punishes them. He judges them. And he judges the serpent as well. And this is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. So let's break this down. There's going to be conflict between the seed of the woman, the, the offspring, the, the, the children that come from the woman, and the children of the evil one, those that follow him and don't want to do what the Lord says and hates God. And, and he will bruise your head. Another translation would be crush. So we're thinking a fatal blow here. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, of the evil one, okay? And he shall bruise your heel. So like a nail that pierces the feet crucified to a Roman cross. So this is metaphorical. This is whispers. But this is what theologians call the first gospel. This is the first kind of, in the midst of judgment, there's yet hope. In the midst of judgment on Adam and Eve, it's not, all is not lost. There's coming a day when, there's coming a day when, there's coming a day when, when the seed of the woman will finally put an end to all disorder and chaos and wickedness and evil, okay? And the point is this morning is that God has kept this promise, this whispered prophetic promise in Jesus, in Jesus. And it's not fully played out yet, but it's in the process of being played out yet. Check out Romans 16, 20. 
And Paul just says this kind of at the end of his letter to the church in Rome 2,000 years ago. He kind of just says it in passing, but you can see how it's the fulfillment. And check it out. Here's what he says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So he's writing to a church in Rome 2,000 years ago, and that's what he says to him. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So look at, at the way this relationship works, right? It's who's, who, who's the active player here? Well, it's the God, the God of peace. He's going to do something, right? He's going to crush Satan. So God's the active agent here. God's the one that's going to do it. But we're also a part of it. We're a part of it. It's under our feet, the feet of the church, okay? He's saying to the church in Rome, God's going to do this. He is doing this, and you get to be a part of it. The church is, it has the, the, the distinct honor and pleasure to be a part of the defeat of ultimate evil in our world today. So it's kind of like this. So we've had really nice weather. I was just chatting over here with the rallies about what we like to grill, you know. And nice weather, two nights in a row, Friday night, Saturday night, we're grilling out. And, whenever, and we, we burn wood during the, the winter to heat our home. So there's a lot of uh, my pyromaniac impulses that get fleshed out in our home. And so we burn w- wood in the, in the winter, and we're always grilling out over the fire in the summer. And I'm always setting the conditions for the fire. And I get the kindling, and I get the, the, the paper, and you got to make the right airflow. And I get this all prepped, but the kids always come up and say, Dad, can I light it? Dad, can I light it? Dad, I want to light it. Dad, get the gasoline. Let's go for it. It's like, no, 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 no. Um, we had this, have you guys ever done like olive oil on the fire? Like that is kind of fun. They, they saw a neighbor do that. Dad, get the olive oil. Like, no, we're just going to have a simple match. Calm down. Um, and so, Dad, can I light it? Dad, can I light it? And uh, yeah, you can light it. Absolutely. And they really get a kick out of that. And that's kind of like what's happening here. It's, it's God is saying he's going to do it. He sets the conditions. He's the active agent in the, in the Genesis 3.15 promise being fulfilled. But he hands the lighter to the church. And I'm going to do it underneath your feet. You get to participate in all of this that I'm going to ultimately do fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? He gets the credit. He gets the glory. But how cool that we as a church get to play a role. So because the cross... And because the tomb is empty, we have the authority to do that, okay? So think about it like this. Let me, let me bring this into your neighborhood. Think of like the, the, the grossest evil that you detest in our world today. In some sense, you can attribute that, not completely, theologically, this is more complex, but in some sense, draw a straight line to Satan, the work of Satan in our world today. He plays a role in, the e- in that evil that you hate. And, and in some sense, God is saying that in Jesus, because Jesus, as we're going to see in a second, is the cornerstone. Jesus is the point of the church. Jesus is the, the foundation of the church. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. Because that's true, one day that evil that you're thinking of will be stamped out. Because Satan will be stamped out. And the church plays a vital role in that. 
you get to play as a member of the church a vital role in that. And it may not happen all at once. It may not happen in our timetable. It may not even happen completely in our lifetime. But make no mistake, the church is marching forward. We play a role in it. And it is, and it is accomplishing his purposes to stamp out Satan one day, once and for all. God has kept the Genesis 3.15 promise in Jesus. He's fulfilled it in Jesus. Okay? God is keeping his promise to us. And incidentally, how many of you have seen the, the Passion of the Christ? You will all remember that opening scene where, where he's sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane and, and Satan releases that serpent and the serpent comes up next to Jesus as he's praying and Jesus stands up and then he stomps the head of that snake. You remember that? That's what this is all about. That's why that scene was put in that movie. Because Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled in Jesus. And then Jesus ignites a fire in his church. And the church gets to participate in that stomping process. That's Romans 16.20, okay? So the promise to crush the serpent is fulfilled in Jesus and is enacted in his church. Number two, the promise to create a people. The promise to create a people is fulfilled in in Jesus. The promise to create a, fe- a people is fulfilled in Jesus. The promise to create a people, God's family, his sons, his daughters, okay? So again, fast forward, or rewind, not fast forward, re- rewind back to Genesis chapter 12. Again, another massive pillar of the, all the promises of the Old Testament right here in Genesis 12. Let's check it out. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go, this is chapter 12, verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you, Abram, what? A people, a great nation, a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, you and this family I'm gonna create, God's saying to Abram, all the families of the earth are gonna be blessed. So from you, there's a really big deal coming. Blessing for the whole world, right? But this was no small task if you'll again rehearse what we've seen in the book of Genesis. How is it that this is going to happen? Because first of all, this promise made to Abram is to a guy who's too old and his wife is too old. They can't have kids. So God, how's this going to happen? Like, don't you know that Abraham and Sarah, they're too old for this? Challenge number one. Let's just keep going. Challenge number two, you got Isaac. And Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, they hate each other. And they might kill each other because of this strife. And then you got Jacob. And Jacob can't find a wife. And what happens if he can't find a wife? How's this promise of creating a family from Abraham going to happen? And then keep going. You got Joseph. And Joseph is betrayed by his brothers in the most heinous way. And 20 years later, those brothers who were wicked get real hungry because of a famine in the land. And they're forced to go to Joseph, who happens to be the most powerful man in the world. And and they got to go to where he lives, where he's all powerful. And they got to ask him for food. And what happens if he remembers this incident and he just kills him? And what happens if he never goes back to this land of promise? I mean, all of these challenges that we've seen in this family. So this Genesis 12 promise is easier said than done. 
all of these crazy challenges to the promises of God. And there's more than this, as you guys remember from the book of Genesis. But God keeps his promises. And year after year after year, God overcomes all of those challenges and continues to create a people for himself. And that's essentially, in some sense, the story of the Old Testament. God being faithful to creating a people for himself. That's one way to look at the book, uh, all of the Old Testament. Until one day, many, many, many years later, after this Genesis 12 promise, there's this guy, this Jewish guy named Matthew, and he sits down and he writes an account of the most amazing person that's ever walked the earth. His name is Jesus. And the first verse of his account says this, and he's making a point. Seems pretty just kind of sterile and normal, but he's making a strong point. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what he wants to communicate to a Jewish audience here is that Jesus, the savior of the world, comes from this family, son of Abraham. The straight line from Abraham to Jesus, that's clear, meaning God is true to his promises. God is true to his promises. And all of those people that preceded Jesus, they failed. They were not a blessing. In fact, they did the opposite. But there is one who has now come who is the ultimate blessing. And God has kept his promise to, to, to be a blessing to the whole world. And you're looking at him. His name is Jesus. And he comes from Abraham. He comes from that promise. He is the fulfillment of that Genesis 12 promise to create a people who are a blessing to the whole world, to all the nations of the earth. And so Abraham's family, centered now on Jesus, is the church. We don't have this on the screen, but I just, I didn't do this in the first service, but I need to do it here because it's so important for you to hear this. This is uh, Galatians chapter 3. Abraham's family centered on Jesus, the church, is now the vehicle of blessing to the whole world. So this is Galatians 3, uh, verses 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Jesus Christ, you are, he's writing to the church in Galatia here, okay? So for in Jesus, Jesus is the point now, for in Jesus Christ, you are all sons of God, Family language, right? People language. We're sons, sons and daughters of God through him. So Jesus is the point. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we're united with him. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no, not male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's family language. That's creating a people for himself language. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's right? You are not just Abraham's, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So all Paul is saying is Genesis 12 promise is fulfilled in Jesus, and all those who trust Jesus are part of Abraham's family, with Jesus being the point, okay? It's all summed up in Jesus, okay? And these people now carry on that blessing, carry on that mission, 
carry on that purpose, carry on that identity. And it's come to pass, okay? We're doing a lot of Bible today, but it's really important that we draw these connections. So here's what I want you to see in 1 Peter. It's come to pass. It's the church. This is us now. Genesis 12, the church. And listen to how Peter, writing to a church 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, how he describes them. Very, very similar to Old Testament language, okay? Genesis 12 type, type language. Here's what he says to the church. But you, church, are a chosen race, a, a, a royal priesthood, a, what? A holy nation. Another way, a holy family, okay? Descendants of Abraham, a people for his own possession. That's how God always talked about his people in the Old Testament, okay? A people for his own possession. That she, why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, all right? So we got to set the context here. And I want, all I want you to see is that his whole point here is saying it's Jesus-centered. All of these fulfillments are fulfilled in Jesus. So if you flip back to verse 4, you'll see this. This is, this is just preceding what I just read. So verse 4 is this. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, church, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you, church, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable God, how? Through Jesus. So again, Jesus is the point. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying, a stone, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they, as they were destined to do. So there's a lot we could unpack there, but the point is this. Jesus is the point. Jesus creates the church, okay? If you reject Jesus... There's no salvation. If you come to Jesus, you're a member of this new family, this new nation, this new priesthood, right? And Jesus is the point. Jesus create, cre, uh, creates it. And then again, the verse I just read, verse 9. But you, church, 2,000 years ago that I'm writing to, Peter's writing to them, and for us as well, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Genesis 12, what was the promise? I'm going to use you, Abraham, to, to create this people that's going to bless the whole world. And we see that now that is fulfilled because the, the tomb is empty and Jesus laid down his life. It's all centered on Jesus now to create this people. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the focus. We are a people of God, the church, because of God keeping his promises to Abraham in Jesus to make a people for himself, the church, us. So I know that's a lot. It's really, really foundational. And here's why it's foundational. Because a lot of you in this room feel isolated and you feel purposeless. You feel isolated. You feel purposeless. And it's just so odd that we feel isolated in our culture today because in some sense we're more connected than we've ever been. But ironically, I think that makes us feel more disconnected than we've ever been. 
Because technology sometimes is just a faux connection point. It's not real connection. And it can exacerbate that sense of isolation because it's not really real. Um, it's not to say it's horrible. It's just, it's just a cheap substitute if we're trying to really make it that, a substitute for real relationship. So a lot of us in this room, we just feel isolated. There's also people struggling with singleness. There's people struggling with feeling isolated in marriage. There's people struggling with, with biological family that, that is just not a good connection point. There's people struggling with isolation in their neighborhood. There's people struggling with maybe being a, a minority in majority culture. But here's what I want you to hear and why we walk through all that Bible to show that God promised Abraham to create a people of his own possession to fulfill his mission in the world. Because I want you to know that because God is a God who always keeps his promises and keeps those promises in Jesus, you don't have to feel isolated. You can know you have a family. You can know you have a family. You have a home. You have brothers and sisters. You've got a heavenly father who loves you. And that gives you an identity, right? If you've trusted and treasured Jesus above all, you're, you're one whose identity is, hey, I'm one who's connected. I am part of a family. You're part of a people that God has created for himself. What do we just read? A holy nation, an, a royal priesthood, a people of his own possession. All that language he talked about to Abraham, he fulfilled in Jesus as Jesus creates the church. Now, the vine in any other church is not perfect, and we never will be, but we want to be in process of becoming that, right? And, and, and if you've trusted and treasured Jesus, you, you will be a part of a church. And then you can know for sure that you have been chosen. You're not isolated. You're part of a chosen people. And you're not the one who's picked last on the playground, Right? If, if, if Jesus is your treasure and your trust, you can know that you've been chosen by God. So you have an identity. You're not isolated. Isolation is not your identity. Being part of a people is your identity. Being part of God's people is your identity. And God's people, as your identity, always have a purpose, always have a mission. All right? What did the, what did the verse say? Let's just rehearse it again. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 